0: Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 104. Last, we heard about the failed First Battle of Tumpo Triangle, officially known as Tumpo One, which took place on February 25th, 1988. You know that things aren't going well when battles are numbered, and there would be three attempts at overrunning Fapla in this defensive position, east of the Quito River, outside Quito Guanavali. Still, some good news had filtered in a few days after the audacious attack on Swapo's facilities in Lubango. This was a town that lies nearly 300 kilometers north of the Katlan in the Angolan Highlands. A jump off point for FAPLA and Swapo as they sent soldiers into the fighting in the southeast along the South-West African border. A bomb had exploded in Ashakati's First National Bank in Novumbaland on the 19th of February, killing 20 people, wounding six. The South Africans wanted revenge and decided to target Swapo's training base at Lubango. Planning for the raid began immediately after the blast and continued all the way through until the next morning, led by Colonel John Church of the SAF. The crews went to bed for a few hours of sleep before their planned take-off time at 0600 on the 20th of February. But a noisy wedding was in full flow nearby at Grootfontein Town, and there was little sleep. At dawn, the groggy crews climbed aboard the Eight Mirages, led by Johann Rankin, who decided to teach the revelers a lesson. He led his eight aircraft at low level and at full afterburners over the town, blasting them with sonic booms in a highly expensive fit of peak before heading on to Undangwa Air Base. They were surprised to find a full breakfast laid on there by base OC Colonel Kursbohrta, and proper briefing facilities had been set up. The crews had not seen that level of organization before when arriving at the Bush military aerodrome. The Mirages were refueled. The men were briefed. At 0800, they took off from Ndungwe, heading northwest towards Lubungo. Major Norman Minna led this attack. His Mirage had the most accurate navigation system. Errors were less than a mile at waypoints. As they flew low level from the southeast, the Compact Warning Receiver, or CRWS, began picking up signals from a Soviet Barlock search radar. They had been spotted. Minna descended lower and lower, only a few feet off the deck by this stage, but his navigation system was spot on, so he folded his map confident he'd find the target. It also appeared that the Soviet radar had lost him. Then a problem cropped up. Anyone who is driven or flown by map knows there's a challenge at the folding points. One of my flight instructors showed me an excellent technique, how to fold maps for specific flights, something I've used to this day. Unfortunately for Minna, apparently not taken this into account. As Brigadier General Dick Lord explains in his book From Fledgling to Eagle There's a famous dictum from World War II that states battles always take place on the joints of maps. As the Mirages swept in for the bombing runs Minner opened his map and failed to spot the anomaly. The two targets were on either side of the joint in the map and this caused a 10 minute of a degree error in the coordinates. That doesn't sound like much but each minute of a degree equates to one mile on the ground. Minna led Trompinel and Johann Rankin straight over the all-important Lubongo airfield. Then they initiated their fairgooi attack, you heard about, the lobbing of the bombs. The bombs landed in the bush ten miles away from the target. Luckily, the coordinates for the second target, which was Swapo's Tobias Sanyeko training centre, were spot on. Three of the Mirages dropped their bombs on the first run, but Major Willy van Kopenhagen had to turn and head back for a second attempt after he realised his sight conditions were not in the correct position for an accurate release. That's a very dangerous thing to do. The Sams were now beginning to lock on, but he managed to avoid being hit by both ground fire and the missiles, and all eight mirages made it back to Ondangwa and Grootfontein safely. The Swabo training facility had been damaged, but not put out of action. Still, the South Africans felt they'd caused some chaos so far behind enemy lines. A totally unexpected raid had shown that the SAF still had some punch left. It also showed up Papa's radar. Apparently, part of the enemy system had been down for maintenance, which provided the SA Air Force with a window of opportunity, although no one on board the Mirages knew that at the time. Back on the eastern front, outside Cuito Kwanavali, Colonel Pat McLaughlin had decided to launch the next assault on the Tumpo Triangle at night. Unlike the first attempt to take Tumpo, this time 61Mex Mike Muller wanted to use the northern route through the Chambinga High Ground, then down the tricky Heartbreak Hill, into the Anjara Lepanda, and then to charge directly at Fapla positions. The night of February 29th was chosen. It was a leap year, with the battle set to continue into Tuesday 1st of March, if necessary. While the final plans were being checked and double-checked, on the other side of the river, the Cubans had sent combat engineers to remine the route in the north, and these men ran into a reconnaissance patrol. Either it was the South Africans or UNITA. The SADF didn't report this anywhere, so we think it's probably UNITA. Their patrol apparently turned and fled into the darkness, and FAPLA engineers laid another 150 mines. There were now 15,000 mines in total across this part of eastern Quitoquinavali. Guanavali. But now the Angolans were almost certain the next attack was going to come from the northeast. Pretoria was not aware that the Angolans knew with almost 100% certainty the direction of the next South African attack. Müller was going to lead two squadrons of Ulufant tanks, a squadron of Rital 90s, a company of mechanized infantry and rifles, 2 battalion infantry companies, as well as engineers, a mortar platoon, a medical unit, and two battalions of UNITA. However, this was what was described on paper. The reality was somewhat different. The two Ulufant squadrons were actually merged into a single squadron because only 16 of the 22 tanks were now running. Wear and tear on the equipment had rendered the others unusable. Only 19 Rattle 90s were now serviceable, while the number of G5 guns had slumped to 12 out of the 16 and three of the Valkyrie mobile rocket launchers were now left. McLaughlin had asked Muller on the eve of the attack whether they should even bother, their force much weaker than they'd liked. Muller was adamant they continued. Forsyth was held in reserve. The South Africans also planned a deception raid by four Royal 90s backed up by a platoon of 30 mechanized infantry who were going to make a noise southeast of the Tumpo Triangle. This was an attempt to confuse the Angolans. They were not going to be drawn into that diversion. By departure time, crucial kit had also not arrived. The force was awaiting the tank mine rollers, special flails that were attached to the olafans which triggered the mines. This delayed the start until 9pm when the attacking force rolled onto the Chambinga high ground approaching Heartbreak Hill. It was misty and rainy. If the South Africans were caught in the open the next day, the MiGs would not be able to spot this column. That was the good news. The bad news was the rain caused a glitch with the night scopes that had failed in the rain, and the drivers couldn't see where they were going. They halted. Frustratingly, Muller decided to wait for daylight. This was going to have an adverse effect on the assault. McLaughlin wasn't convinced they should stop, but eventually agreed that the assault would go ahead at first light. Waiting for them on the east bank of the Quito River was a much reduced enemy force. Fapla had been withdrawing westward constantly since the first assault on Tumpo on the 25th. The Requis counted over 700 Angolan troops withdrawing over the Quito Bridge. Just a single brigade, the 25th, was left on the eastern bank. That meant around 800 troops, along with five tanks and three BM-21 rocket launchers, were there. But on the west, the Angolans had tightened their forces. The 8th, 13th, 21st and 59th Brigades were squeezed together a potent amount of firepower. They had also been bolstered by a Cuban Infantry Regiment. Monitoring all of this was Russian Major Alexander Petrovich Sergeyev, who was embedded as a translator with the 25th Brigade. A few Cuban advisors were based on the East Bank and they made up the bulk of the tank crews as well. So at dawn on the 1st of March, the South African tanks began to move again. And by 10 that morning, they had crossed the Amhara Lepanda, and had travelled a kilometre along the southern bank of the Dala River. Then they hit thick bush, and were inside the Tumpo Triangle. Everything was quiet. Too quiet. The SADF planners had thought that by switching their assault from the southeast to the northeast, this would have caught FAPLA flat-footed. The only problem was, FAPLA commanders expected the next assault to be a switch. When the SADF was to review their plans later, they discovered that no FAPLA units were actually facing south, They had aimed everything directly at the east and northeast, so confident that the artillery would stop any attack across the Anhari Lapanda and their newly laid minefields were a real threat. As the Ulifants trundled down from the Chambinga high ground, Muller had already denied a request by his tank gunners, who wanted to open fire on an area where they knew FAPLA's mobile rocket launchers, the Stalin organs, were parked. That was on the west bank of the Quito, and Muller didn't want to give his position away. The noise of the engines had alerted Fapla, but in the thick mist it was difficult to tell how far away or where exactly the South Africans were. Had the SADF fired on the Stalin organs, the bursts of fire coming from the tank barrels would have been visible through the mist. The Stalin organs fired a few ripples of rockets themselves, but these were far away from the South Africans, and Muller ignored them as the column moved forward 100 meters at a time, inching towards Fapla's positions. By late morning, they were four kilometers northeast of the Quito bridge and close to the edge of the Quito River floodline. A thick area of bush signified they had arrived at that point. As Muller's force inched forward, his cloud cover began to burn off. Just before midday, the first wave of MiG 21s and MiG 23s were spotted by the Reckies heading towards 61 Max's column. Shortly thereafter, one of the MiG 21s was hit by ground fire and crashed, killing the Cuban pilot and at first the SADF on the ground reported that the Angolans had hit their own aircraft with ZU-23 guns, but the jet fighter had actually been hit by an American Stinger missile fired by UNITA. Listening on the main comms monitoring the attack from his vantage point was 61 Mech's Clive Holt, who had been assigned a support role. This type of news was always cause for celebration, as the MiGs enjoyed full air supremacy and gave us a hard time, he said. Müller's ulifants crept forward, headed up by a tank using one of the mine rollers, flailing away, detonating mine after mine. This was the trigger for Fapler's artillery, which opened up with 120mm and ZU-23 fire. They couldn't deploy the M46 heavy guns because the column was so close they were inside their minimum range. Müller ordered the rifles and tanks into firebelt action against these gun emplacements and then laid down half an hour of heavy fire on the Angolans. The South African G5s began to find their range, picking off the Angolan artillery with spotter and recce assistance, until Muller had managed to reach a point about three kilometres east of the Quito bridge. It was now that the full force of FAPA's defensive position came into play, at least twenty different points across the western side of the Quito river bank, in front and on the flanks of 61 mech's heavy vehicles. It was from here that the Cubans and Angolans fired 82mm mortars, B-10 recoilless guns and AGS-17 fragmentation grenade launchers as well as SAGA anti-tank missiles at the South Africans. I can't begin to describe to you how incredibly heavy the encounter was, said Muller after. Officers claimed the volume of shells fired was the biggest engagement fought by the SADF since World War II and the South African tanks and rattles fired hundreds of rounds back. Gradually, FAPL's positions were being worn down, picked off one by one, smoke and dust ashes and vegetation floated across the battlefield obscuring both sides from the other then two ulifants ran into mines and the sadf discovered that hundreds of anti-personnel mines were laid between these tank mines anyone jumping off a damaged vehicle could be killed unita troops riding along with the south africans took the brunt of the casualties swept off the back of tanks and rattles at times by the mortars and other shells flying in from fapla's artillery at around 2.30 2.30 in the afternoon, the Angolans managed to outflank the South Africans, and Muller pulled back. A short while later, a rifle was hit by a 23mm gun, but by some miracle, no one on board was killed or wounded. Soviet advisers kept a close eye on proceedings, and Major Sergeyev noted that the South Africans were stuck at the tree line and were now being peppered by 12 Soviet tanks, T-55s, which had also lined up on the western bank of the Quito River. Unita was suffering very badly. They were the main infantry and were trying to get close enough to the tanks and other armoured vehicles to inflict some damage, but these men were exposed. Those 23 millimeters were just wiping the UNITA blokes off the tanks, Muller told Fred Bridgeland later. If I close my eyes now, I can still see it clearly. The 23mm shells were blasting into the infantry. Men were disintegrating. Muller's ulifant tanks were breaking down. Their oil and fuel filters were clogging in the dust, and the engines began to overheat. They had now fought for 800 hours through several battles without being fully serviced. The SADF could not get the heavy jacks and lifting equipment to the front in time, despite engineers' desperate appeals. Any machine would eventually break, and the ulifants stopped where they were. Six more tanks were now broken down in the minefield. The Tiffies got no rest, fighting from the ARVs, repairing the tanks, pulling them out. Muller began to ponder worrying information he'd received in an intelligence briefing the previous night. As his tanks broke down one by one, he remembered the intel that there were ten tanks based on the eastern bank of the Quito River and he was concerned they were now on their way towards his marooned men. There were only three, but he did not know this. He radioed McLaughlin to get approval to withdraw. McLaughlin radioed General Cut Liebenbach and Willi Mayer, who granted the request. As they retreated, a rattle detonated another anti-tank mine as a kind of confirmation of the danger of further action. They all managed to make it out. Then McLaughlin radioed Muller back and ordered 61 Mech into battle that same night. By now, however, Unita had been clobbered and the South Africans were stunned by the amount of firepower brought to bear against them by Foppler. Some of the lower-ranked officers said after this battle that Muller should have kept going, that Fapla was about to fold. A more focused look at the facts contradicts this. If you analyse defence defensive positions, it's quite clear that had the South Africans pushed forward, hundreds of guns and cannon facing the handful of rifles and what was left of the Olufant squadron would have mauled the SADF. And don't forget, of course, the MiGs flown by Cubans who were also likely to have continued to play their part. It was a miracle. While UNITA had been hammered as they sat on the back of the South African tanks and rifles, not one South African was killed or wounded. The men of 61 Mech were deeply affected by what had happened, while their senior officers were dubious of any further assault. The enemy minefield was much deeper and more extensive than expected. These mines now covered an area between the Quito and Tumpa rivers, five kilometers wide, hundreds of meters deep. FAPLA had also set up a highly mobile system, where their anti-tank guns were being moved back and forth, making them very difficult to hit. Behind these were the tanks which outnumbered the SAD of heavy weapons by more than 2 to 1. The Russians and Cubans had been very busy in the days before the Tumpo battles and installed their feared 23mm guns on the high ground. From here, they sowed carnage in the killing zone. The entire defensive position created by the Angolans was designed to swing in all directions except the west. It made no difference if the SADF rolled in from the north, east, or south. They were going to be hit by well organized units from anywhere. And as you know, the SA General Staff had refused to countenance any attack from the west. There were not enough ulifant tanks to be useful anymore, a critical weakness. And lastly, 61 mech's rattles were seriously exposed when they faced a single 23mm cannon, which had the capacity to shoot rounds all the way through Rattle Armour. Um. And yet, right now, the irony of war kicked in. Most of the South African troops involved in this Tumpo Two battle believed they defeated the Angolans. There was talk amongst the men of how soon they had cross Quito Bridge and head into Quito Conavali itself. In the bivouacs that night, some troopies said they would overcome the town and then continue heading north towards Benong. A bulletproof attitude had returned to these men fighting in their fourth month inside Angola. It was like the second wind that athletes get, wrote Holt in his memoirs. The main reason they felt like this was the fact that there were no SADF casualties. The men somehow ignored the terrible pasting that UNITA had taken. Their Cavalier attitude would unravel quite quickly from here on. These men, many who were now suffering the effects of shell shock and PTSD, received the news they had been hoping for. Most of 61 Mech's infantry were going to go back home in a well-deserved rest. Colonel Paul Fouchier, who had been sent back to South Africa months earlier, had managed to raise a new brigade to take over from 21 SA Brigade, which was now on its last legs, despite the feeling that they were experiencing this second wind. Because the SADF had been training his men in counterinsurgency ops, Fouchier had found it extremely difficult to raise this new brigade, so he turned to a citizen force formation which was officially designated as 82 SA Mechanized Brigade and part of 8 SA Armored Division. These were reservists. They were not full-time soldiers. They had served their two years national service and were now called up for camps. Operation Hooper, which had been limping along for months, formally ended and Operation Packer was about to begin. Also about to begin were a series of meetings to bring about the end of the SADF's involvement in Angola and Namibian independence. Diplomacy was going to shape the near future. A tentative Cuban knock on the door took place in November 1987 in New York, where the South African mission to the United Nations was approached directly about a possible solution. A major breakthrough came in late January 1988 when Luanda and Havana told the United States at a meeting that they accepted the necessity for all 50,000 Cuban troops in Angola to be withdrawn. U.S. Secretary of State for African Affairs Chester Crocker and Angolan Foreign Minister Alfonso Vanduna Mbinda met with Cuban Politburo member Jorge Risqué on February the 1st in Washington. The fact that Risqué and Crocker had gathered anywhere together was hugely significant. The Cuban was Fidel Castro's most senior trusted lieutenant in charge of foreign affairs of the Cuban Communist Party. He had fought with Castro and Che Guevara in the Sierra Maestra Mountains in the 1950s before they had overthrown the Batista dictatorship. Risque was also pragmatic, unlike many in the Cuban Communist Party. The South Africans who were to meet him shortly realized he was not the enemy that they'd been mentally trained to hate. In fact, Risque became known as Uom Kaspas to Pretoria's negotiators, a kind of term of endearment. Uom Kaspas was a popular Afrikaans cartoon character, while Fandunum was also more middle of the road in Angola's MPLA cabinet. He'd gone on record saying that talking to UNITA was going to be necessary at some point. Then this went further. During negotiations, Fandunum the Angolan, brought one of his family members, who just happened to be Angola's justice minister, by the name of Fernandez Fandunum, to talks. And Fernandes Fandunum was an expert in Afrikaans poetry. There was still a sharp war, and before any settlement was negotiated, the SADF would send more men to their deaths at Tumpo Triangle, in a third attempt at trying something that had failed twice before. Something truly significant was also now taking place. Castro had sent his feared 50th Division, the men who usually protected his capital Havana, to southern Angola. By now, there were 3,500 troops from this specialist military organisation based in Kuneni province, close to the South West African border. SADF military intelligence had detected their movements, which is exactly what Castro wanted. Pretoria, he said, needed to know just how exposed South West Africa was, and the noose was now tightening on the apartheid government. More about this next episode. Please rate the podcast on iTunes. It helps raise the visibility of the series. If you want to contact me, you can head off to abwarpodcast.com. There's a contact form on the homepage. Or you can direct message me on Twitter, at Des Latham. Until next, goodbye. Mm-hmm.